0: Now, will you turn with me in your Old Testaments, in the Scriptures, to Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52, and we're just going to read verses 13 through 15. And we begin a new series this morning. I decided to end my series on the Pilgrim Life because I had done seven of them, and I thought that's a perfect number to just finish on. If we ever need to come back to the pilgrim life, there's lots more to be said, but I decided that I'd like to uh, turn our attention to the suffering servant of the Lord, and so that begins in chapter 52, verse 13, and goes all the way through chapter 53, which we read this morning in our responsive reading. Also, I have entitled verses 13 through 15 here, in chapter 52, the startling and sprinkling servant and you will notice in verse 15 that the word sprinkle is mainly used in the translations an alternative translation is the word startle so I've combined the two the startling and the sprinkling servant so let's read verse 13 through verse 15 Isaiah 52 (coughs) behold My servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle, startle many nations. and Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. And may God bless to us the reading of His precious Word. Now let's pray together. (coughs) Our Heavenly Father, we draw near in the quietness of this time to, to contemplate from Your Word this great, Prophecy made so long ago by the prophet Isaiah about our Lord Jesus Christ, the suffering servant of the Lord. We pray that as we work our way through this passage today and through the weeks that come, that we might, we might have a fresh appreciation of our Lord Jesus Christ, of his sacrifice, of his death in our place. And so we ask that by your Holy Spirit you would teach us and you would instruct us and help us to understand your word. We thank you for it. And may all the glory and all the praise be received by you, our great God, and by our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray and ask all of these things. Amen. Amen. Now, these verses, verses 13 through 15 of chapter 52, form uh, the introduction to chapter 53. I think most of us, if we have ever read the Bible, would be familiar with Isaiah chapter 53. It's a very well-known portion of Scripture. It's a very well-regarded portion of Scripture. It speaks to us So emphatically in one direction, namely it talks to us about the sufferings of an innocent, blameless sufferer. One who takes the place of others. Someone who bears the sins of the guilty, of the violent, of the wicked, of the unrighteous. Someone who stands in their place. And that someone is described in Isaiah 52, and not only just here, but in other passages in Isaiah, as the suffering servant of the Lord, or the suffering servant of Yahweh. And so this morning I want to draw your attention to this introduction, because you cannot really comprehend chapter 53 unless you grasp and have a foundation of chapter 52 verses 13 through 15. So, These verses are the introduction to chapter 53. They belong to chapter 53. And the reason they belong to chapter 53 is because they begin what we know from the Bible as one of the servant songs. A servant song, a song that is to be sung, a praise that is to be rendered by the people of God concerning the identity of the person, the sufferer, that we read about in this passage. There are four servant songs in the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And these songs are are important in the prophecy. This song, chapter 52.13 through chapter 53.12, is the last song. So this is song number four. This is the fourth song. The first song, you go back to chapter 42 verses 1 through 9, is where you find this first song about the servant of the Lord. The second song is in chapter 49 and the third song is in chapter 50 and then you come to chapter 52 verse 12 through chapter 53 where we have the the song that we want to consider together this fourth servant song. Now because we are coming to Isaiah the prophet late in the prophecy, I mean this is chapter 52, there are 66 chapters So behind chapter 52 lies 51 chapters. So it's important, I think, that we all of us understand in a broad perspective the outline that we have, or that we should give or should see from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet. And that means just simply that God has called him. And God has commissioned him with a message and with a ministry, with a mission. He is to declare to God's people the word of the Lord. He is not called to give a message about himself. He's not called to dabble in the culture of his time, though he is going to expose the culture of his time. He's not called to, to do his own thing, then. He is called by God to be a proclaimer, to be a prophet, to be a preacher that is sent by God with a message from God. That's what a prophet in the Old Testament is supposed to do. He is called as a prophet to the southern kingdom. And you remember, the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, came about because after the death of Solomon, the kingdom was divided and 10 tribes uh, went to the north and existed under king jeroboam and two tribes Judah and Benjamin remained in the south under king rehoboam the son of solomon and that division of course came about because of the decline and the sinfulness of solomon towards the end of his life And so we discover that the prophecies of this prophet Isaiah are given mainly, primarily, to the southern kingdom, to the kingdom of Judah, and to the city of Jerusalem. The opening chapter of uh, Isaiah tells us that the prophet Isaiah prophesied during the reign of four kings. And those four kings are Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Three of those kings are good kings. So Uzziah, Jotham, and then Hezekiah are all good kings. But king number three, King Ahaz, is a very bad king and a very wicked king. And so Isaiah is called to minister the word of God, to be a prophet, to proclaim the word of the Lord during the reigns of these four kings that we read about in the Bible. His call and his commission you read about in Isaiah chapter 6. and What a remarkable commission that was, right? The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1 that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, I meaning the prophet, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. The glory of God was there before Isaiah the prophet, in the year that King Uzziah died. That, frankly, was a frightening experience for Isaiah the prophet. It is a frightening experience to see any manifestation or revelation of God. No man, God says, can see my face and live. That's how serious God is. You cannot just boldly come into God's presence by yourself with arrogance and with self-confidence. No, men and women, boys and girls, when they approach God, must approach God with a reverence and a holy awe because of who they are approaching. Not the gods that are of this world, but the God of the Bible, the only true and living God. And so any approach that you and I might make towards God must always be conducted in reverence and in submission. And that, frankly, was the the position of Isaiah the prophet. When he saw the Lord high and lifted up, the angels, the seraphim, were flying to and fro. And they were proclaiming as they flew, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is filled with his glory and isaiah the prophet records that when they declared the holiness of god that the very foundations of the temple building shook there was there was almost this earthquake experience that took place when isaiah saw the lord in the year that king uzziah died and smoke filled the temple and so on well what's the response of isaiah the prophet It can only be one's response to a revelation of God, right? Woe is me. I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of an unclean people. What stands out for Isaiah against this purity, this glory, this beauty of God is the uncleanness of himself and the uncleanness of his people. And isn't that true for all of us? We are reminded that the distance between ourselves and God is because of who we are and what we are like. Because we are sinful by nature. And even as Christians, now that we have been born again by the Spirit of God, the great struggle with sin and the power of sin we experience day by day remind us of how far we are from God. And that's why this passage is important to us in chapter 52. Because it reminds us that God has bring and brought those who are far off, he has brought them near in the person of the servant, in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Isaiah receives his commission in the year that Uzziah died. And Uzziah, King Uzziah died, this good king, in the year 740 B.C. His great-grandson, or yes, great, great-grandson, Hezekiah, will die in the year around 646 B.C. So you can see that the prophet Isaiah, from at least the year 740 to the year 646, which is perhaps 54 years uh, and beyond maybe, ministered the word, proclaimed the word for a long time over the reigns of these four kings. The reign of King Uzziah, when he began his ministry, was prosperous. It was a good reign. Isaiah was, uh, sorry, Uzziah the king was one of those men who took delight in a variety of projects. For instance, he was very interested in engineering. So he built military machines like catapults to defend Jerusalem and Judah. He was a man who was very interested in horticulture and farming. The Bible says that he loved the soil. So here's a man who is the king, who rules over a people, yet himself has a variety of interests. In other words, he is very gifted and very talented. God has done that for him. And with his death, times began to change. Jotham, his son, who was also a good king, did not reign very long, but that gave gave rise to that man that we know in the Bible as King Ahaz. And what a vacillating, what a weak, what a sinful man that man was, King Ahaz, the grandson of Uzziah. And so, hard times began to fall upon Judah in the southern kingdom. Difficult times began to happen, especially during the reign of King Ahaz. Far to the east is the Assyrian kingdom. And in the Assyrian kingdom, there is a king by the name of tiglath Peliza the third. And Tiglath Peliza the third has set his sights on expansion. And as he looks westward he sees Israel the beautiful land. He sees Israel and he desires Israel for himself. And so he begins to launch various assaults upon Israel which you discover later in the time of Hezekiah King Sennacherib who is also now the Assyrian king, tries to overthrow Judah and is thwarted by God himself. So that Judah remains safe and secure. But these are the hard times, with the threat militarily from the Assyrians to the west. So most of Isaiah's ministry is in these difficult times. This is true for any prophet. They tend to prophesy because God sends them, To his people in times of trial, in times of hardship, in times of suffering. And Isaiah finds himself in no different circumstances. He is in increasingly difficult and dark and troubled times. We also discover that this prophet is married. Isaiah is married and he has children. His name is a beautiful name, the name Isaiah. It means the Lord is salvation. And that's very descriptive of the prophecy of Isaiah. It is a book, a prophecy about salvation, about the salvation of God. One of the things that also stands out is that Isaiah the prophet seems to have ready access to the kings of Judah. You always find him conferring with them. In fact... He has a lot to say to King Ahaz and a lot to say to King Hezekiah. So he seems to be able to come and go into the presence of the kings with very little uh, exception. He is regarded, and I think rightly so, by many as the greatest Old Testament prophet, probably uh, uh, excluding Moses the prophet himself. His fellow prophets, because it's not just him alone, there are two other prophets that were called by God from the south, Micah and Amos. The thing about Amos, though he lives in the south, was raised in the south in Judah, he is called to minister to the north. So during the prophet Isaiah's ministry, he has a fellow prophet, the prophet Micah, and in the southern kingdom, and in the northern kingdom is prophet Amos, who is prophesying to the kingdom. All of those three prophets, Isaiah, Micah, and Amos, have one major goal in mind. That is to unveil, show, declare the sins of the people to themselves. And what were those sins? Those sins were idolatry, number one, big, huge. They followed idols, God's people. Number two, immorality. And by the way, you always discover in the Bible that immorality and idolatry are married and go together. And where one exists, the other is sure to exist. And so this is why God sends the prophet Isaiah to the southern kingdom, to Judah, to expose their proclivities, their inclinations, to dabble with what the northern kingdom has already given themselves over to, namely pure rank idolatry. And Judah is beginning to play with idols and beginning to play with immorality. He is called, Isaiah, the evangelical prophet, Because this is the prophet who gives us so much information about our Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to read about Jesus, you can see Jesus in the Psalms, right? He is in the Messianic Psalms. There are many Messianic Psalms. In fact, I dare say there are more Psalms than we realize that are about our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus, when He was raised from the dead, He said to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, when they were talking about the sad events that Jesus had died, and that was the end of it, but they had heard a word about resurrection, not knowing that the one who was talking to them was the risen Christ, that Jesus begins to unfold for them, doesn't He? In all the prophets and in the Psalms, the things that were written about Himself. And so when you read the Psalms and you read Isaiah, you get this great picture of sin and salvation. And that the salvation is only of God and the sin is all of man. And that is something as a Christian, as believers, we have all come to understand. That it is our sins that condemn us before God and that it is only God who can save us and who can deliver us. This is the message, broadly speaking, of Isaiah the prophet. More than any other prophet in the Old Testament, he gives us incredible prophecies, profound prophecies about Messiah, about Jesus. For instance, he talks about the birth of Messiah. He talks about the life of Messiah. He talks about the death of Messiah. He talks about the rule of Messiah. He talks about the judgment of Messiah. He covers covers the lifespan from the promise of birth to, to final victory by this one individual that the Old Testament refers to as Messiah, that we read about in the New Testament in the Greek name, Christ. And Christ means Messiah, the anointed of God, the one who is sent from God to bring about this great deliverance. Incredibly, we read in these verses before us this morning about the exalted Messiah, and immediately, verse fourteen, the humiliated Messiah, and that causes a response in verse fifteen to what we discover—the exaltation and the humiliation of uh, Messiah. We have beautiful prophecies, don't we? I mean, think of Isaiah seven fourteen at Christmas time. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us or think about isaiah chapter 9 and verses 6 and 7 for to us a child is born to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name will be called wonderful counselor the mighty god everlasting father the prince of peace those are magnificent prophecies aren't they concerning jesus and fulfilled of course by jesus so isaiah Uh, has the subject of salvation very much on his heart and on his mind. That's what he thinks about. That's what he preaches. That's what he proclaims. And the reason he does that is for a simple reason. Salvation can never, ever be achieved or attained by man himself or his power. No matter how smart you are, no matter how intelligent you are, No matter how wise you are, you could never come up with a salvation that required the suffering of an innocent victim for your guilt. You would never do it. In fact, I know you would never do it because you, before you become a Christian, proclaim how good you are. You proclaim how wonderful you are, how exalted man is. When you discover in this passage that this is a passage like the rest of the Bible, especially the New Testament, that reduces us to the level of being unable spiritually to comprehend anything or understand spiritual matters unless God reveals it to us. And He does that sovereignly, doesn't He? By His Spirit. So this subject of salvation is very near and dear to Isaiah and to his heart. He stands, by the way, at a pivotal point in human history because he stands almost in the middle between Moses the prophet and the Lord Jesus Christ, Messiah, who was to come. And between them, bringing what Moses has said and anticipating what Jesus will say, you find this great prophet standing at a crossroads almost Seeing his kingdom and his world about to crumble in the future, there he is giving promises of hope and promises of glory. And I have discovered in our own time how desperate people are, even Christians, for some hope, for some word of encouragement, for some word of comfort and consolation, because we are surrounded by fearful things, surrounded by dreadful things. So, Isaiah is going to speak of the passing of an old order and the introduction of something that is glorious and brand new that ultimately will fill the whole earth with the knowledge of God Himself. Now, you know, God has remarkable ways of getting your attention. He may bring trials into your life trials that you never thought, trials that never entered your mind, but He may bring them into your life because He wishes to get your attention. He may bring illness into your life, like He did in the case of others. He may bring sorrows beyond measure, like Job losing all of his children in one flash of a moment. God can do that. You see, God has remarkable ways of getting your attention. When everything goes well for you, you tend not to think so seriously about God. But just let God touch you. Just let God put a heavy hand upon you. And then, if you are a believer, you certainly will respond and will think about what God is doing. So, what is God doing? What kind of hand does He he exhibit in Old Testament Israel? Well, first of all, on Israel, He tells them the Assyrians are coming. For Judah, He tells them that in the future, the Babylonians are coming. And it is God who raises up the Assyrians and raises up the Babylonians to be the instruments in the hands of God or, to put it this way, to be servants in the hands of God to bring about restoration, repentance by His people to bring judgment also upon sinful nations. Those captivities that Israel, 722 B.C. into Assyria, 586 B.C., Uh, judah into babylon are simply the expression of the consequences of their guilt and their sin they go into bondage they go into exile they go into slavery because they have rebelled against god and god sends his prophets time and time again to convey this message of impending judgment and so they find themselves in the future judah slaves to the babylonians And that will last for 70 years and then God will restore them because that's what he promises to do. So Isaiah is not just ending in ignominy or hopelessness. But beyond the Babylonian captivity he sees someone who rules and who reigns and who is filled with such glory. And that's the one that he pins his hopes upon and wants his people to rest their lives upon. But God has another servant, doesn't He? We've just been reading about Him. Here in Isaiah 52. You will notice in verse 13, if you look at verse 13, He says, Behold, my servant. And in this sense, He's not talking about the Assyrians or the Babylonians. And He's not even talking about Israel, who is sometimes called the servant of the Lord. But here He is talking about an individual Behold, my servant. And notice, he shall be high. He, this individual. So he's talking about an individual. This my servant. And we have referred this servant as the servant of the Lord. Now you can divide Isaiah into three great sections. In chapter 1 through 37, you have the righteous rule of the king. Because that is a passage about the judgment upon the nations by the king. So the righteous rule of the king, chapters 1 through 37. Secondly, you have the righteous life of the servant, chapters 38 through 55, which is right where we find ourselves, the righteous life of the servant. And finally, the prophet will talk about the righteous victory of the conqueror, chapter 56 through chapter 66. If that's too much for you to remember, think of it this way. In chapters 1 through 39, the prophet is speaking or giving prophecies of condemnation. He is talking about retribution. They have sinned, the nations, including Israel and Judah, and therefore God will judge them. So prophecies of condemnation, retribution. But then you will discover that in chapters 40 through 66, he gives prophecies of comfort, of restoration. So first judgment and then salvation. First condemnation, and then comfort. Judgment is going to come upon, the prophet Isaiah says, all these Gentile nations. And he gives a long list of them. He talks about the Babylonians, and the Assyrians, and the Philistines, and the Moabites, and the Arameans, and the Edomites, and the Egyptians, and the Arabians, and the Tyrians. He goes into great length about the judgment of God against all of those nations. And then he tags on Don't forget Israel and don't forget Judah. They too would come under the judgment of God. And when he pronounces that judgment, he is pronouncing a universal judgment upon all of them with devastating consequences for all of them, for their destruction. But then when you get to the remaining chapter 40 through 66, he changes from condemnation and judgment to salvation and to consolation and to comfort. He gives them hope. But he pins that hope on an individual, on Messiah. And we're reading about here as my servant, the servant of the Lord. He is the one who's going to save. He is the one who's going to bring salvation. Isn't it interesting to you that when Gabriel says to Joseph that Mary's going to have a son, and you shouldn't be afraid to take her as your wife, because that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. You shall call His name Jesus, Matthew one twenty one. Why? Because He shall save His people from their sins. That's why Jesus came. He came to save His people from their sins. And Isaiah chapter 53 is about Jesus, about Messiah, saving His people from their sins. It really is this great doctrine that we never really hear about anymore, about a penal substitutionary sacrifice that is made. And this is what the prophet Isaiah is giving us. Interestingly enough, when you read Romans chapter 11, the Apostle Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 59 and he puts it this way, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will remove Jacob's transgressions. When he says the deliverer, Isaiah 59, as the passage is about the conqueror, that's what he means. The conqueror who is the servant, who is the king in the prophecies of Isaiah. And so all Israel, he says, will be saved. And when Paul says, and so all Israel will be saved, he means all Gentiles, believing Gentiles, all believing Jews. You put them together. You have the Israel of God, meaning you have the people of God. The people of God are those who are comprised of believers from Gentile nations who fell under the wrath and the judgment of the servant and who also are believing Jews, whom Paul describes also in Romans chapter 11 as a remnant present at this moment according to the election of God. So, these passages in Isaiah are beautiful. I would encourage you to spend time. You know, there are 66 chapters in Isaiah. If you read two chapters a day, you'd be almost finished in a month. So you can tag on at the end the extra few. It's a wonderful book to think about, to read over and over again. And in particular, from, verse, sorry, from chapter 42 through chapter 57, you have these servant songs that are incorporated in the prophecies of Messiah to speak of Messiah. For example, Messiah's mission, chapter 49. Messiah's obedience, chapter 50. Messiah's encouragement, chapter 51. Messiah's atonement, chapter 53, Messiah, uh, Messiah's deliverance, 54, Messiah's invitation to come to him, chapter 55, come to me, buy, freely, you don't, have to, you don't have to pay anything, come, come to me, it's free, he says, and then a rebuke if you fail to come in chapter 56. So Isaiah, as he writes his prophecy from chapter 1 through chapter 6, in this unified prophetic word about Messiah, he unfolds Messiah as the King, and as the servant, and as the conqueror. Messiah filled with the Spirit of God. Messiah filled with the Word of God. Messiah whose life is absolutely blameless and perfectly righteous. That's at the heart, by the way, of who the servant is. He's innocent. He's blameless. He's righteous. He's, holiness. He's holy. So just as His life is that, so too is His reign and His rule. So if you notice, for example, in chapter 53, look at verse 11. Chapter 53, verse 11. Out of, his, out of the anguish of his soul, he, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant... Make many to be accounted righteous. So notice here that the servant is called my righteous one. The servant of Isaiah 52 verse 13, behold my servant. But notice what he does. He makes many, not everyone, he makes many to be accounted righteous. What do we mean by accounted righteous? We mean justified we mean He makes many justified. He justifies many. He saves them. He makes them right with God. And this is an interesting word, isn't it, because you don't make yourself right with God. You're unable to. You're condemned. It's only Messiah, it's only the suffering Jesus who can make you right with God and acceptable to God. That's what it means In that verse 11, my righteous one, the servant, will make many to be accounted righteous. And so at the heart of this fourth servant song is the suffering of the servant. Now I want to ask a question because it's important, I think. Since Isaiah has unfolded, chapters 1 through 37, Messiah as the king, how can this Messiah be the servant of the Lord How can the servant of the Lord be Messiah who is actually also said to be the king? Not only that, but how can the king or Messiah suffer in such a way? How is it possible? And this suffering, by the way, is hinted at in the second song in chapter 49. And the third song song in chapter 50 says this, I gave my back to the strikers. And my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Isn't that exactly what happened to our Lord Jesus? And notice how the servant speaks in the first person. I gave my back. I gave my beard to be pulled out. I gave my face to be spat upon. And to be brought into disgrace. I gave Myself, the servant says. So we already see the humiliation of the servant is in the servant songs. But when you come to Isaiah 52 and look at verse 13, the prophet doesn't begin with humiliation. He begins with exaltation. And so, notice verse 13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So if, if in verse 13 you have the exaltation of the servant, then notice how he plunges from those three verbs that position Messiah so high, so exalted, to so low in verse 14. As many were astonished at you, his appearance so marred beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of the children of mankind. What a change, right? Usually, the Bible begins like in Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul describes the humiliation of Jesus and then the exaltation. And the exaltation of Jesus is dependent upon the humiliation of Jesus. Unless Jesus go to the cross, there will be no crown of glory. So he goes to the cross and he gains the crown. And so too, unless there is the thorns placed on his brow, there will be no throne. So in order to get the exaltation that the Bible speaks about, there must, first of all, be humiliation. But that's not how you find Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52 reverses the order. And there's a reason, as we shall see, for why he has changed the order or given it as he does in this place. And then you will notice that verse 15 is actually the response to the humiliation in verse 14 Of Messiah of the servant so we are introduced here this is just an introduction in chapter 52 to the suffering servant of Yahweh to the Lord himself who suffers and these verses are all essential to your understanding a particular redemption and a penal substitution that Jesus uh, undertook and accomplished in your place Now I know, as I think I've said already, we're very familiar, or probably more familiar, with chapter 53 than chapter 52. In fact, I memorized chapter 53 when I was in Sunday school as a child many years ago. No doubt many of you have memorized chapter 53. And in doing so, we perhaps forgot to start in verse 13 of chapter 52, because that's where the passage actually begins. It is surely... Chapter 53, without exception, in all of the Bible, the greatest passage on a penal substitution of what it means for someone to undergo the penalty that you deserve and I deserve, who doesn't deserve it himself, who is completely pure, completely innocent, completely holy, and yet willingly humiliates himself, to be put into such a position that he bears the wrath and the judgment of God on your behalf and on my behalf, who are guilty and who are condemned and who are exempt from these things. And so we are going to discover the greatness of this penal substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now if I were to ask you, what is it that stands at the heart of the gospel? What answer would you give to me? Surely the only answer is the cross. At the heart of the gospel stands the cross. But if I were to ask you, well, what stands at the heart of the cross? What answer would you then give? Surely the answer is that what stands at the heart of the cross is this substitution that is made on behalf of others. This sacrifice for their sins in their behalf by someone completely blameless and completely innocent who takes the place of the wretched, who takes the place of the unworthy who takes the place of the completely guilty parties so in the cross which the Apostle Paul says I boast in and I glory in and God forbid that I should glory save only in the cross of the Lord Jesus, because it has done something to him, he says, it's by which the world is crucified to me and I am crucified to the world. So in the cross, in Isaiah 53, which is completely echoing the cross of Jesus, like Psalm 22 does, we shall see this shameful death where a curse is imposed upon the sufferer and where pain is endured and where wrath the wrath of a holy God is undergone or is endured and suffered. The cross is about the guiltless Jesus standing suffering for guilty, sinful people. that's the cross. It's penal substitution. By penal, I mean the penalty of my sins are. Justly dealt with by the wrath of God. God's justice must be satisfied for my sins and my sinfulness. Jesus undergoes the penalty. He bears the wrath. The consequence of God's hatred for my sin. Jesus goes. So penal substitution is horrific. Penal substitution is horrible. It is awful. Both spiritually speaking and physically speaking. And in the passage you discover that there are physical sufferings just as there are in the death of Jesus physical and then spiritual sufferings. By the way, I believe this is a doctrine that is in decline. And it's been in decline for a long time. Even Mr. Spurgeon lamented. He said, if ever there should come a wretched day when all of our pulpits shall be filled with modern thought. And this old doctrine of a substitutionary sacrifice shall be exploded. Then there will be no words of comfort for the guilty and there will be no hope for the despairing. How true he was. And it's true still today, I think. So these introductory words show us the servant then. He startles. He sprinkles. That's what the, the prophet says. When, it, when I use the word that he startles, I mean that... He's one who surprises. One who surprises. The servant is not surprised by his sufferings, by his humiliation. It's not the servant who is startled. He startles others. And so it is the nations and the kings, if you look at verse 15, so shall he startle many nations. And kings shall shut their mouths because of him. And so the nations and the kings are startled. Well, why are they startled? Why are they sprinkled? Why are they startled? Well, it's because of these descriptions in verse 13 and 14. Verse 15 is the response. So shall he startle many nations. Why will he startle many nations? Because there's just been this great description of exaltation and then this humiliation has been given right after that. And so they're looking at this exalted one who then is the humiliated one and they're wondering to themselves, what does that mean? And so verse 13 promotes him, portrays him as exalted and quite rightly so, right? This Messiah is to be exalted. He's the one that Isaiah the prophet has been describing in exalted terms. He's the one who will deliver his people out of their bondage and out of their slavery. And you'll notice that immediately God gets your attention in verse 13. Behold, my servant. He just puts him out there in front for you. And look what he says. Everything he does is with wisdom. He shall act wisely. By the way, that translation, shall act wisely, is better than shall prosper. He shall act wisely. In other words, he's going to use the best means to achieve the glorious end that he's aiming at. Your salvation. The best means. There's the only means. The only means is a penal death, a substitution, a sacrifice in your place. That's the only means. And it is God himself who introduces the servant. Behold, my servant. So God says, here he is. Here is the one who brings salvation. So it's God who proclaims. And it's God who promises the servant's exaltation. Which reminds you, as I've said, of Philippians 2 verses 9 through 11 he has been highly exalted because he humbled himself became obedient unto death even the death of the cross notice these three verbs in verse 13 he shall be high he shall be lifted up he shall be exalted now it's almost as if he goes up, up, up to the highest place lofty position the highest place belongs to my servant he will be exalted Now, some commentators, when they look at those three verbs, they see in those three verbs, first of all, the resurrection of Jesus, which is exaltation. Then they see the ascension of Jesus. And then they see the session of Jesus right at this moment, at the right hand of God, interceding on His people's behalf. So there's this step up, as you like, from resurrection through ascension to glory, to the session at the Father's right hand, occupied by Jesus now I can accept that, that that's how I see that yes there is a progression and I think the use of the three verbs even though they are high verbs of exalted status they still seem to indicate he will be this then this then this and these all exalted notice also the language he shall be which speaks of a future accomplishment Which speaks of a future anticipation of the servant. So in verse 13, God reveals his servant, his servant, but then in verse 14, he brings the servant down to a human level, to man's perspective. And look how he describes in verse 14 as many as were astonished at you. Why were they astonished? Well, look what it says his appearance is marred beyond human semblance form beyond that of the children of mankind. So Isaiah states these things as a contrast, notice, between the action of the many and the action of the kings in verse 15 and the nations in verse 15. Now look at the contrast. The many are astonished. The many are astonished. But the nations are startled or sprinkled and kings close their mouths. They shut their mouths They have had open mouths, they have been saying certain things, but now when they see this suffering servant, they shut their mouths because of him, and so on. So the many are disturbed by what they see. The many are astonished, Isaiah says. They are disconcerted. Why are they astonished? Because of the sudden change from verse 13 to 14. Because of this change from exalted one to humiliated one. And they are astonished. Well, how did that happen how did he go from being high lifted up exalted to I can't even recognize him I can't even see who it is I can't make out his facial features I can't who is this one it's the same one it's the glorious exalted servant of God who now becomes nothing and in an instant in one verse the change is dramatic right so the many are astonished because of this sudden change that comes upon him, exalted degradation, from the highest place to horrible disfigurement. It's beyond their comprehension. They're astonished at God's servant. Notice it says that his appearance, first of all, is so marred. What does that mean? It means you can know this servant no longer appears as a man. He's unrecognizable. That's Jesus unrecognizable for you. Notice his form, secondly. His form is now such that he no longer even resembles a child of mankind. I don't know what that is on the road to Calvary, but it doesn't look like a man. It looks like broken flesh. It looks like a shameful display of someone who has undergone tortures beyond comprehension and suffering. It is the hand of man against him and it is the hand of God against him. And he is despised and rejected of men as we shall see in the first three verses of chapter 53. It's a horrible change from beautiful glory to this ignominious, unrecognizable, non-resembling of humanity. In other words, what the writer wants you to see in his appearance and in his form is that a brutal, brutality, horrible brutality has taken place upon the servant, upon Jesus. Now you know, dear congregation, you and I are not used to hearing about these degradations upon Jesus. All we hear about is the love of Jesus. But that is the love of Jesus. That is the love of Christ, broken, crushed for our iniquities, Bruised. It pleased God to crush his son. It's beyond comprehension, right? To take him from glory, as it were, and reveal him like that and then show him as not even something that resembles a man. Why did he do that? For me, for you. Substitution. Substitution. And you'll notice in verse 14 that little word you, right? It says in verse 14, as many were astonished at you. Who's the you? That's my servant. As many as were astonished at him, at my servant. Why? Because his appearance was so marred beyond human recognition, semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And so this is a contrast that shows the servant who stands over there. Uh, uh, over and against the many who stand over here on whose behalf he's going to suffer, who are astonished at him. So here he is, glorified, exalted, and then you see him humiliated, degraded over here, and the many on this side looking at him who are guilty or astonished that that should be the case. What does that mean? These, the many who so persistently have misunderstood Christ. Just like you misunderstood Christ once and had no comprehension of who he was. Perhaps your understanding of Jesus was what what is out there in the world. Good man, marvelous example, good teacher, incredible. But he failed, he died. And you reject the resurrection because you reject all that's supernatural, reject all that's miraculous. But everything that is described here is supernatural, is from the hand of God. So these many have lost their understanding, lost their comprehension of who Messiah, who the servant really is. And I discovered that that was me at one time. I did not understand. In fact, I did not want anything to do with Jesus. And same with you, before you came to Christ. You scorned him. You mocked him. You rejected him. You had some other ideas of Jesus. And notice that the nations in verse 15, they're startled. Or let's use the word sprinkled. The word sprinkled, by the way, is a word that is used for ritual purification, it's a word that is grounded in Old Testament Mosaic law. You read about the priests who were always sprinkling the blood, right, to purify. To cleanse. And this sprinkling will bring about a ritual purity before God. So the one who sprinkles is himself innocent and blameless and he does the work of a high priest. And what do we discover Jesus doing in his offices? He does the work of a priest. He sheds his blood. He makes sacrifice. And then he intercedes on behalf of those for whom he made sacrifice. So the people of Jesus' day, when they look at Jesus, they see Him simply as a man. They see Him as unclean. They see Him just like themselves in need of some ritual purification at the temple, like every Jew must undergo, that the priests would perform. Jesus Himself is seen by the Jews of His day as needing just that. But He doesn't need it, does He? In fact... He's the only one who can sprinkle the guilty. He's the only one who can sprinkle his blood, shed his blood for them and cleanse them. So in reality, he will sprinkle the kings and the nations of this world by shedding his blood for them, innocent blood. And so the sprinkling or being startled is because the sufferer, the suffering servant does the startling and does the sprinkling. I'm so amazed at how people want to achieve salvation good works well my family is a very good family they're a moral upright family we're good people I I go to church regularly these are all statements people made to declare their justification before God but we're never justified by before God by saying that we're good we come from a good family that's what the pharisees said we come from abraham we're descended from abraham how can we we are the people of god wrong they had no idea of what it meant to be the people of god and so the sprinkling This being startled comes by this one who alone can underdo the work. And notice what kings respond. Their response is they stand in silent awe and stand in silent horror. They shut their mouth, Isaiah says. Why do they shut their mouth? They shut their mouths because of the utter novelty of how anyone can be saved. This is how you get saved. This is how a person is born again through the humiliation of Jesus Christ. This is how Jesus saves sinners, through his sacrifice, through his death, through his sufferings. And these kings, with their might and their power, they achieve success by their might and their power. How can anyone be saved by, you can't even tell if he's a man. How can he save us? This novelty that salvation comes through that Suffering or that humiliation, they shut their mouths, nothing to say, because it's beyond them. It's only the sufferings of Isaiah 53, by the suffering servant, that are accepted by God on your behalf and on my behalf. You see, dear congregation, in Isaiah 53, the gospel is being unveiled. It's being unveiled. You remember how Paul talked about the gospel is veiled when the Jew reads Moses. But Paul says, when you come to Christ, the veil is taken away. So now, no longer is the gospel veiled to us, but it is unveiled, and frankly, it is unleashed upon us. Through the preaching of the word, and through the witness of believers. So I'm going to close now, because this is just an introduction. Here are two beautiful thoughts to think about, right? Number one, the servant came to startle me. The servant came to startle me. Number two, the servant came to sprinkle me. And what do I mean by that? The servant came to startle me. He came to convert me. He came to save me. What do I mean by he came to sprinkle me? He came to cleanse me. Conversion, cleansing, salvation, forgiveness of sin. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, the Bible teaches us. So Jesus came to convert me. Jesus came to cleanse me. I cannot convert myself. I cannot cleanse myself. And if you think, well, perhaps I'll improve my life, I'll do some good works, and God will accept me. No! Conversion is at the hands of the suffering Messiah. And only at the hands of Jesus. He converts. He saves. He cleanses. He purifies you'll notice at the end of verse 15 how Isaiah puts it he says that which has not been told and I like this now for myself I now see that which I had never heard I now see it and that which had not been heard I now understand how did that happen how does it come that I see and how does it happen that I understand that's grace that's the work of God in saving sinners He opens their eyes to see. He opens their minds and their hearts to understand. Once I was in the dark, in darkness and death, now I'm in the light and I see life, the life of Christ. Christ has been made unto us the wisdom and the power of God. And in the preaching of the cross and in the message of the cross, which is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, an ongoing work of God in saving me, converting me to bring Himself to me, to cleanse me, begun in justification, continuing in sanctification. It's the sovereign work of a gracious God. I now see it. I now understand it. That's grace. I see then Jesus humiliated for me, and I see Jesus exalted me right that's the gospel began at the cross and isaiah prophesied that it was going to happen and as we shall see as we go through 53 that's exactly what happened for us i pray that you will understand this and that we will all understand it and come to love jesus even more because of what he did let's pray together now our heavenly father how can we say thank you enough for your son. You gave your beloved son to make atonement for our sin. Help us then as we continue in Isaiah in this great and glorious chapter 53 in the weeks to come that we might comprehend what Jesus has done for us and that we might rejoice and be grateful at the conversion, the regeneration that we have experienced by your sovereign grace. That we might revel and delight in the love you have showered upon us in your son that we might rejoice in your rich mercy given to us, undeserving, guilty, vile, wicked, sinful people. Thank you for saving us by grace. Thank you that it is not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. And so help us to walk in your ways and to love you more. So teach us from your word, we pray, and thank you for your word this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.